It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in uh, one of those two coordinates, 106.5 or 95.7 and ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. Of course, you can also listen on our website uh, right around the globe. And uh, we also post all of our interviews on our SoundCloud, and you can go back and listen to those at your leisure once they are aired. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Professor Alexandra Johnstone, and she is uh, successfully leads and manages high-caliber research activities with the Ruit Institute at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. So it's a pleasure to welcome Professor Johnstone to the show. Welcome. So thanks, David. Yes, it's nice to join you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, like I said, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And we're here to talk about an article you put in the conversation about uh, is your body weight affected by what time you eat? Oh, that's a good question. That is a good question. I'm sure many people, uh, you know, some people might say they already know the answer to that if they sit around on their couch at night watching television and eating potato chips or something of that nature uh, and have put on a few pounds. What made you decide to think of of this particular topic, though, at this time? Uh, I think there's been a lot of research around this area, hasn't there? Yes, there has. So we know that uh, what we eat is incredibly important to influence uh, how easy it is to gain weight or indeed help us lose weight. So really we're developing to think about whether uh, when we eat also impacts on our energy balance and um, we know from some recent studies that perhaps when you eat more of your calories earlier in the day, then it's easier to lose weight than when you, you eat most of calories later in the day. Now, that's really interesting because it's when you eat the same amount of calories. So mm. what we're really interested in is what goes on inside our human body that influences uh, energy balance. Right. Now, uh, Professor, you are recognized as a leading innovative uh, researcher in UK uh, within the field of human appetite control and specifically the role of dietary protein. Um, how, 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 you say dietary protein, how important is that and what does that actually mean? Gosh, yes, yes. Uh, this is a, a topic that I enjoy speaking about. So dietary protein is one of our energy providing macronutrients of course the other ones are carbohydrate fat and alcohol so we know that when you eat a gram of protein it's relatively more satiating than if you eat carbohydrate or fat mm. and that means that it has a really good ability to fill you up so you don't feel so hungry and you feel fuller for a longer period of time so it might be that the protein comes in different forms. So that could be consumed as a meat-based or indeed actually a plant-based protein. So the amount seems to be for activating uh, appetite seems to be, the amount seems to be more important than the type. You know, I've, I've uh, tried to watch my intake of calories and look at my protein intake versus my fat and carbohydrates. Am I wrong in that my own uh, research into this on a very limited level 
uh, protein seems to be harder to uh, to to find or to to uh, gain gain variety uh, access to. Does that make some sense? It can be. Um, so I suppose many people can reflect on what you've said because, of course, we all eat. So we're all, all experts on eating, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, and, you know, anecdotal evidence is always really interesting. Uh, people have always got a story to tell me when, when, I, when mm. I say what I do for my job. But when we look at um, the real evidence that, uh, that's collected in more controlled environments, we, we can see that actually there's a range of different foods that can, can contribute towards your protein intake whether it's from cereals, whether it's from fish, whether it's from eggs, whether it's from plant-based, like in the UK, the top plant-based protein would be baked beans. So baked beans and toast would be a really good example at breakfast time. Mm. So, you know, there really are lots of different uh, variety of protein sources out there. And if you use, you know, an app to track your intake, then that can be really helpful just to give you an idea of, you know, where the protein's coming from in your diet. Right, absolutely. Now, um, I see that also it says that uh, you, you use your kitchen as a laboratory <laughs> and you have rigorous standards to maintain quality scientific uh, protocols. I, I, it, it, I, I wonder what your, your, uh, your kitchen looks like, if it looks any different than any other or if you have, uh, you know, and if you have these rigorous standards set up for, for people in your household that, uh, that you have them stamp the food or tell, you know, break it all down for them and things like that yeah so so yeah that's what i definitely do at work so everything is weighed to the nearest 0.1 of a gram so mm. volunteers in my study are used to getting a slice of bread with a, a chunk taken out of it because it's been <laughs> made specifically for them so we make individual diets at the human nutrition unit at the rowett institute and that's one of the the specialities that that we can do that because that means I can provide diets for weeks at a time. Mm. So our most recent research, we provided diets for eight weeks and looked at, for example, a big breakfast versus a big dinner and how that influences body weight. Circadian rhythm. That's a big one, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, an old-fashioned, or it's an old science, yes, and we're bringing that into the new uh, time of call, calling that uh, chronal nutrition. So we're interested in time of eating and how that interacts with what we eat. Do You know, in, in many ways, though, when we look at things, like we say circadian rhythm, and we you, you refer to it as something that is, uh, it's been around and, and now bringing it into the scientific world, Um do we find sometimes that that our our natural in instinct and our our, our innate uh, idea of how we should be eating or what we should be doing uh, is 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 already there for us? It's already set up for us. It's, it's internal. We don't have to think about it too much. Does that make some sense? Yeah, no, that's that's quite correct, Diva. Uh, yeah, so it is an internal process, and we have um, the. Uh, brain uh, an area in the brain controls this regular sleep awake cycle over a roughly 24 hour period and that's cued very much by light Mm. so for example when you have jet lag your circadian rhythm is out of sync 
to what it would normally expect from clock time you see in your watch mm. to where the circadian internal circadian rhythm would be uh, with the light cues. But you can also, of course, get cues from feeding. So um, mm. that's that's the basis of circadian rhythm. It, you know, something in your article is interesting where it talks about um, uh, the body's processes, including digestion, metabolism. Uh, that's one that's big on that I'm very interested in. Appetite regulation by secreting certain hormones based on what and when we eat. I thought that was really interesting based on what and when we eat. And what are these certain hormones? Uh, how do they how do they line up or or what what does that mean in terms of what and when and and what are these hormones uh, that are associated with the what and the when? So picking out some of the ones that might be most relevant to what we've discussed in terms of which ones might influence appetite. So these ones might be, um, for example, ghrelin or leptin or PYY, so peptide YY. So Mm. these would be um, released either in response to feeding or anticipating feeding. So it might be that, for example, some of these hormones already themselves have a circadian rhythm. Mm. When you eat in sync with, for example, the hormones, then that would potentially have a different impact when than when you're eating out of sync. So for example, we know that people who eat have a desynchronized sort of eat sleep pattern. This would be people that would traditionally have shift patterns. Mm. They have poorer health, metabolic health outcomes. So we know that this regular pattern of sleeping when it's dark and being active during the light cycle for human beings is a healthy um, sort of cycle. And Uh, we can get extra uh, feedback from feeding, which will also impact on the release of the hormones. And apart from shift work, what we're interested in is that how time of day, when you eat the most amount of calories, impacts on the release of the hormones. Because we've tended to move away from um, a pattern or move towards a pattern rather that that we eat most of our calories in the evening and less of our calories in the morning. And that's a much more modern lifestyle. Mm. Is is our why do I get the sense that our that our brain or our metabolism or when we get hungry, why do we sometimes get hungry when we're not really hungry? Why do we get the sense that we need to eat something? What, what is that all about? That is, you know, that's a really good question. And hunger is influenced by so many internal but also external things. So, um, and remember, hunger is subjective. So if I asked you just now how hungry do you feel, it would be a score that is relative to what your natural hunger zone would be, Mm. for example. So, um, and... For example, if one of your colleagues came in with a really nice cake and said, hey, David, it's my birthday. Do you want a piece of cake? Then socially and culturally, then you would kind of join in that celebration. So mm. you might eat some of the cake, even though you're not hungry. Right. And then the converse to that is you might have such a really busy day, even though you not had time to eat. Maybe you've had a really stressful day and that impacts on mm. appetite. 
Mm. So you just say, oh, you know what? I've not had much today, but I just don't feel like eating. So, mm. so, so yeah. So you know, it's it's we, there's so much we don't know about regulation of appetite. Um, and that's what fascinates me in my science. Does our stomach um, um, have the ability to uh, become habit trained, I guess? So you can, um, you can entrain feeding as a form of behavior. So when that can become a habit, for example, you will have food preferences um, that will, uh, it's not impossible to change, but you can, of course, change them. So if you've got somebody who, for example, always takes sugar in their tea or coffee mm. and uh, they, they can entrain themselves to cut that out. And then when they go back to it after a period of time, they think, oh, it was so sweet. How could I do that? Right. So, so these, these, because eating is a form of behaviour, then yes, a lot of what we um, choose to eat can be habit but that also means that that's good because that means we have opportunity to make more positive healthful choices in our eating behavior yes absolutely you're listening to element fm in toronto and ottawa that's 1065 in toronto 957 in ottawa anywhere across the country if you download the radio player canada app type in one of those two coordinates and uh, then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day seven days a week Please don't go away because we will be right back with more right here on Element FM right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Professor Alexandra Johnstone, and she uh, leads and manages high caliber research activities with the Ruit Institute at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And it's a pleasure to have her on the show talking about, is your body weight affected by what time you eat? Professor, one of the things uh, that you have in your article is metabolism. Now, I find that really interesting, uh, metabolism and body weight, because I've often wondered why our metabolism changes and why, for instance, as we age, our metabolism doesn't seem to slow down like our our need for food does. Does that make sense to you? So, yes. I mean, metabolism at a basic level is the minimum amount of energy your body requires at rest. So, um, and it's closely... Uh, linked to body size or mass so the larger you are then the greater your metabolic rate the smaller you are then you have a slower metabolic rate so for example when you lose weight then your breast metabolic rate will decline Ah. so as you age body composition changes tends to as a generic sort of statement and that particularly um Thinking about women, particularly postmenopause, for example, then we tend to lose some of our not only bone mass but also muscle mass, which means we have slightly more fat mass. Mm. Now it's muscle mass that requires this energy term- turnover much greater extent than fat. Fat is more of an energy store. So as you age, then body composition changes. So we know that, for example, not only do we lose bone mass, but we also 
have a, a decline in muscle mass. And that's what we call sarcopenia. And that's a normal process associated with aging. But it also means that we have a higher proportionate amount of body fat. So both of these things will influence the amount of basal amount of calories that the body requires. So body size and body composition. So protein, which we spoke about earlier in our discussion, is incredibly important. So consuming an optimal amount of protein in combination with that physical activity and resistance-based exercise will help you maintain your fat-free mass or muscle mass to keep uh, maintaining that uh, higher level of energy turnover. What you just said there was really interesting. I don't think I've quite heard it described quite like that before in terms of the metabolism in, and and how uh, sort of the larger you are, the greater metabolic uh, rate you, you have and require more. Um, but that would uh, that would also, am I also correct in understanding that would be weight as well? So if you weigh more, then you're going to crave more. Is that does that make sense? So um, cravings are not. Uh, it's probably not the right term. Okay. So stick to metabolism. So your metabolic rate, your energy turnover, as you are bigger, you will be greater. So the analogy that I give is. If I asked you, this is a nice Scottish word, to carry a sack of tatties or a sack of potatoes, (laughs) then you'd feel tired because you're expending much more energy carrying that extra weight. And then when you let go of the sack of tatties or potatoes, then you've lost that weight and you'll be expending less energy. Right. Okay. Um, That makes, of course, perfect sense. Um, so when you look at, at the time of eating, um, and uh, as you talk about the, what your study has, has found, um, is that there is some truth to the idea of the circadian um, um, uh, 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 time clock and, and those kind of things. If you mess up that time clock, if you have people eating at different times, uh, you have found that that, that does uh, affect things. What did, your, what did your study ultimately uh, find at the end of this? So what, what we're interested in is what happens to um, the different components of energy expenditure when you consume more of your calories, 40% of your calories in the morning compared to 40% of your calories in the evening. So mm-hmm. that's a big breakfast. That's a big breakfast in combination with a small dinner or a big dinner in combination with a small breakfast. And what we're interested in is looking at whether that influences metabolic rate, which we've discussed, but also physical activity. Because in on the days that you consume a huge amount of calories, perhaps in the morning to lunchtime, if we think about Christmas Day, for example, when we're known to consume a lot of calories, mm. after you've consumed that large meal, what do we usually do? want to rest yes you just flop down the sofa <laughs> like, so so yes really so you can have the inherent metabolic effect consuming calories at different times of the day but you can also have that behavioral response of how does that influence your um sort of uh, activation to go and perform physical activity 
I always thought that was uh, because our 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 bodies and our stomachs were taking a lot of the energy to try and digest and, and the food. That's what I always heard. Yeah, no, so that you know that's interesting. So one of the components that we're measuring in our study is gastric emptying, and mm. it is true that the amount of calories and the the form, so whether it's for example liquid or solid, will influence gastric emptying. But also we need to think about not just the physiology, the behaviour, what's the behavioural response of a certain time of eating or a certain type of meal. Mm. And what about the the idea, you know, we all hear about now the intermittent fasting. That's a big one that's going on at these days. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I think that's, it's fascinating. Um, So, of course, there's different types of intermittent fasting, but I'm guessing you mean the one where people uh, have a time window for mm-hmm. eating. That time window could be perhaps um, early feeding, maybe you know 8am till 3pm, or maybe more commonly you extend overnight fast and maybe only eat from uh, 11 o'clock to 4 or 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So, um, that, now that's interesting because uh, from my reading of the literature and, and I would say there's more literature in uh, murine models than there are in human studies so I think there's more studies to be done but certainly the studies that have been done in humans tend to suggest that the weight loss is, is minimal mm. but the, the, the impact on what we call metabolic health or blood sugar or glucose control can be quite distinct in that uh, we know that we are much more insulin sensitive in the morning than compared to the evening. Yeah, so that's, that's really interesting how yeah. you would combine your feed fast then into something to promote really um, positive uh, metabolic health. And that, that, yeah, yep, sorry. sorry, go ahead. And, and I would, so I would say that the sort of jury is out slightly on that. We need a lot more larger studies um, to assess that. Yeah, I was going to f- uh, ask you if, if it was uh, a, of a benefit or, uh, you know, on a positive or a negative way that, that those results were, were coming in from that. The other thing I wanted to just clarify is when you talk about these, these um, this kind of like intermittent fasting and the kind of things that people do to try to uh, support weight loss, uh, what we're really talking about is fat loss, right? That is—is is that not true? And 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 are we, and when when we do these intermittent fasting kind of things or any kind of fasting, I guess per se, are we are we just reducing that stored fat, or are we also reducing the muscle which we need? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is that's a good point. So what what when we want to lose weight, it could be for aesthetic purposes. But ultimately, for health, what we want to try and do is maximise the loss of fat mass and minimise the loss of muscle mass. So um, years ago, I did some some work where we, where I got people to fast for a prolonged period of time for seven days consecutive. So that's extreme fasting. Mm. Difficult to do. It was done in an experimental um, unit. And what we noticed that when we compared people who were fasting compared to people just following uh, a low-calorie diet was that when they were fasting, yes, they did lose a lot of their muscle mass and mm. it didn't maximise the loss of fat mass. Yeah. 
think that's a very valid point that actually a slower rate of weight loss, which is induced by a smaller energy deficit over a prolonged period of time, perhaps was better for changing body composition. But the big problem with that is that that means you need to adhere to the diet. Mm-hmm. It means you need to uh, maintain a, a negative energy balance yes. over a prolonged period of time. And that people find that difficult to do. Yes, They want the quick fix. They want the magic bullet. Yep. Um, and you know what? I think I'm often asked, well, Alex, what's the, what's the best diet? And I, my answer is simple. The best diet is the one that you can stick to because it's that adherence that's going to help you lose weight. Mm. Uh, now, the idea that we talked about the carbohydrates, the fats and the proteins, we do need fats. Fats are very good for the brain, for instance. Yeah, sure. So essential fatty acids are really um, important for many aspects of health. And um, that's why we've got dietary guidelines that, you know, for example, tell us to consume our oily fish and to mm. Have a range of whole grains and fruit and vegetables, as long and, and with the, the the amount of fat. We're trying to avoid saturated fat and go for the polyunsaturated, monounsaturated versions. Right, uh, Professor. We're almost out of time. I'd like to ask if there's anything else about your research or what you've got uh, work, you're working on now uh, in working into the future uh, that you'd like to uh, that you'd like to, to share with us just before we end our conversation. So I suppose just to, 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 to elaborate on the last point we were discussing is that in the future, what will the future of nutrition, nutritional medicine look like? And I think it's going to look like persistent nutrition. So I think at the moment we get a bunch of people in to take part in our research and look at how they respond. But of course, there's always responders and non-responders. There's always somebody who responds really well to a particular type of diet. And that's really where the future lies, I think, that, mm. you know, we can take a blood sample, a fecal sample, a saliva sample, do some questionnaires, do some psychometric testing, and then we'll be able to figure out, you know, what is it about these people that makes them more better suited to a particular type of diet for health. So I think that's the future mm. of marketing. So. I remember hearing something on this topic as well that 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 goes back to our um, our, our genetics as well as uh, the, the our our nation of people that we originated from that that has something to do with the, the kind of food we should be eating. Does that make any sense? So yeah, so we've got such amazing technology now, omics technology. So uh, whether it's looking at genetics, metabolomics, and we can sort of combine these different technologies to get a really uh, excellent overview or a profile, should we say, of people. So, um, yeah, so that means we'd be much better positioned to to define how their body works and then, therefore, what types of foods to consume and maybe perhaps what to avoid. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, Professor Alexander Johnson, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. We want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's been good fun. Thank you. Right. We look forward to maybe speaking with you in the future on some of your future endeavors as well. Thanks. That'd be great. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. That's Professor Alexandra Johnstone. She is uh, leads and manages high caliber research activities with the Ruit Institute at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. 
and she also initiates and organizes and coordinates multidisciplinary team projects with the Ruit Institute nationally and internationally. And we've been speaking to her about uh, her article in the conversation, Is Your Body Weight Affected by What Time You Eat? Thanks for listening to the show, but don't go away. When we come back, how might plants be able to tell us the location of dead bodies? Yeah, that's right. That's what we have coming up next, and we'll get that answer. Don't go away. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and also anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, 1065 or 95.7, as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Professor Neil Stewart. He's a professor of plant sciences at the University of Tennessee. He holds the Ivan Rachef Chair of Excellence in Plant Molecular Genetics, and he serves as a co-director of the Tennessee Plant Research Center. And after taking his PhD at Virginia Tech, he joined the Wayne Parrott's lab at the University of Georgia as a postdoc from 1993 to 1995, after which he moved to UNC Greensboro, where he was an assistant, then associate professor, from 1995 to 2002 in biology. And in 2002, uh, Stewart assumed the Rachef chair with an appointment to professorship. So uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Stewart. Oh, thanks. Great to be with you. And uh, we're here to talk to you about an article that you, you put in the, uh, the conversation, um, the topic of which uh, is, is a little, <laughs> is a little um, unusual, but very interesting. Uh, what plants are able to possibly tell us about the location of dead bodies? We're talking about human bodies, in fact. Now, when I saw that, of course, the first thing I thought of, of was the little shop of horrors. And I think you allude to this in your article, in fact, that it sounds something like a horror show. The second thing after reading the article, though, I have to tell you, the other image that came to me was a detective running out of his office with a plant under his arm, his sniffer plant. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be fun. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. But I guess, you know, it's not really unusual for us to think about plants in this way, is it, really? If, I mean, we all decompose. We go back to the earth. uh and and we decompose and and our bodies feed feed plants they they go back to the earth well they do i mean back in the old days before we became very adept at, at making fancy coffins mm. or building incinerators because mm. basically that's usually how we 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 end up spending um uh, the, our our time right after we die, right? You 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 get embalmed. You get put in a fancy box that uh, delays decomposition. That's the whole point. Or you just skip decomposition directly, and you become incinerated, and you have all these ashes. Mm -hmm. So, what we're thinking about here is how plants will respond. Uh, when you, you don't have those circumstances, when, when people go missing and they die, maybe in unexpected ways, how, how will the existing vegetation change to help us define these, these uh, dead people? 
Yeah, and of course, um, as you as you said, most times uh, people will die with their families and pass on, and and the family is present, the body is present. But there are situations where these uh, they they don't happen, such as accidents. I don't know, small plane crashes somewhere. Um, you know, any number of things can happen like that. And also, uh, let's face it, there are there are uh, unfortunate murders, and the bodies uh, are, are sometimes not found. Um, so. You you started to explore this idea, and when you started to explore this idea, you you found, I guess, that other people had started to think along the same lines. Well, you know, it's yeah, it was a little surprising that more scientists hadn't thought about this, or at least if they thought about it, they didn't really do very much research on. Mm near near term plant responses to human decomposition but after after i took my first trip to the uh, university of tennessee anthropology research facility which is uh, more commonly known as the body farm um mm. i started thinking more and more about the plants that were there and they're mainly trees trees and mm. shrubs Mm-hmm. It's not a farm like uh, you know that you'd grow um, soybean or corn in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's on a slope, um, and and they study. So the anthropologists there at the body farm study human decomposition and the uh, decomposition activity and interaction with various other organisms like insects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they've been doing that for a long time, like over three decades but they hadn't really done very much with the plants. And, you know, so when I started talking with them and uh, the anthropologists and then uh, soil scientists and other plant scientists, we thought, huh, well, maybe there's something here that we can learn about um, mammalian decomposition and human decomposition and its effect on plants. You know, (laughs) It brings me back to that uh, uh, the the film I saw about the little shop of horrors that uh, you know where he's he the plant wants to be fed blood and he's feeding it and it grows with the blood and then of course uh, as he as he has to find more bodies to feed it 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 starts growing uh, flowers with the faces of the people there that have been uh, fed to it and I thought you know it's interesting even from that standpoint that that there wouldn't have been maybe a, a connection uh at some point somebody would have thought hey yeah i wonder if there's a connection between plants and in decomposition yeah. uh um, can you do you know and i know this isn't your maybe your expertise area but when when a body decomposes you know one of the things you talk about in the article is nitrogen and 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 one of, that's one of the things that the body gives off that 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 plants can u- utilize uh, do we know how much, uh, how much, uh, like nitrogen and 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 these nutrients that the body gives off that can can uh, benefit the plants around them? Well, a, a rough calculation is that an average sized person um, will will um, will contain over two two kilograms of of nitrogen. Um, so this is in the form of proteins and you know various other nitrogenous compounds, and when human decomposition happens, um, there are also microbes within the body that now leach out of the body and into the soil. 
Mm-hmm. So the decomposition fluid goes from the body to the soil, and so do, do the microbes. Mm-hmm. And that fundamentally changes the soil chemistry uh, and even the microbiome within the soil and it, around the plant roots. And so that part's been starting to be studied, whether for uh, our, our, our soil scientists on the team, uh, Jennifer De Bruin has been doing that for the, the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't, no, nobody's gotten to the part where the microbes and the, um, and the decomposition fluid is now uh, talking to the plant. So we can figure out how the plants can talk to us. Yeah, and I, I've seen articles around this. Uh, I know that uh, I saw an article on on uh, someone that hooked up some kind of uh, electrodes to to plants, and and the plants were actually generating music, for instance. Right. Um, you know, and we've also heard about uh, trees. Uh, you know, you talk about their sensitivity because because they are rooted to the ground, right. uh, as all plants are. And how um, if one tree is stressed, that another tree or other trees will start to uh, feed the, that tree that is being stressed. So all of this communication between, uh, between the plant world uh, shouldn't really surprise us. And, and, and you know, there, there probably is a lot, that, as you say in your article, trees have been around a long time uh, and they're, they're directly connected to the, to the earth. So uh, they'd be able to tell us a lot about that. And, and you know, I, I can't all, also help but think about the uh, the indigenous people who uh, have also talked about Mother Earth and that connection to the Earth uh, and how everything is alive and everything is connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's. Um, I mean, we so humans compartmentalize uh, our humans to compartmentalize ourselves in into uh, almost a space that is that is not connected. Mm. But it, you know, it's, um, um, it's dust to dust, right? That's mm-hmm. that's that's how that's how it goes. Whether we're incinerated, buried in a in a in a, in a coffin, or or something else, and you know, from my from this this article and the trends in plant science article that can kind of came first mm. on um, plants being able to potentially detect human decomposition. Yeah, people have reached out to me to uh, suggest all sorts of alternative um, uh, um, grave graveyards, burial uh, um, bur- burial procedures. You know, all kinds of things, and I, th- mm. I find it I find it very interesting, and um, especially the older I get, right, and uh, <laughs> you know, thinking, okay, well, what what am I going to do? Mm. Uh, apparently, now you you coined a, a word a, a couple of years ago or twenty years or so. A phyto, phytosensor. Phytosensor. Yeah. Yeah, and that so, means what exactly? Yeah. So phyto is plant. Sensor is sensor. So I mean, so mm-hmm. these are we we we've been genetically engineering plants to act as uh, sensors of environmental um, stimuli for mm-hmm. for some time. You know, like uh, plant plant pathogens that cause disease right on on plants Um, you know that it's a really fascinating uh world you work in isn't it well well it is and and this is you know the first this is my first foray into uh 
uh, forensic anthropology or forensic botany or any of those fields. I mean, I've been doing uh, work that's mainly targeted to agriculture and the environment. Most of it's lab work. Mm. Um, although we have done some fields, but these are like flat fields, regular agricultural fields. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah, this is uh this is very interesting uh, foray for me. What's in your, in, in, in what you've done so far, what's the thing that, that has surprised you the most or, or that has, you know, raised your eyebrows and uh, in, in that uh, has taken you back a little bit uh, that you weren't expecting? Oh, I mean, I suppose the whole thing as far as public <laughs> interest. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, okay, so usually people are not all that um, um, excited about plants. You know, they're excited about <laughs> their gardens. They're not, mm. but, you know, and they like trees, but they're not, but it's like, uh, what, CSI botany. <laughs> you know, there, there's not that that show is not does not exist but True. but but yeah i mean just the whole interest in 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 potentially being able to 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 use trees to uh solve crimes is mm-hmm. people are really interested in that yeah so <laughs> well it's true uh, it it's very true that's why i got this image of this you know this uh this uh, plant sniffer, uh, you know, going under the arm of the detective as he leaves, leaves the, the room, uh, you know, out on a case, um, which I guess, you know, if we think about this in, in what you're doing, um, and as you say, you, you studied plants. And now trees, you know, being the, the, a, a big, they make a big uh, imprint on, on, your, on our world and also on our, on our visual space. Uh, they bring us shade. They they bring us uh, beautiful sounds as their leaves are moving in the, in the wind. Uh, you know they're they're lovely to look at, but it, under the ground and in the soil, uh, that's where their world is is really uh, doing and changing things. What 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 do you know about that that communication that that takes place between plants? So between plants. Most of the most most researchers who have studied plant to plant communication, they they've looked at the the, the above ground part. Mm. Um, the underground is uh, kind of underground. It's been very inaccessible. It's much more difficult to to work on. Mm. So we know about um, various microbes that interact with with plant roots and help plant roots to to acquire nutrients not so much about the plant to plant communication below ground mm. um and so what we're looking at for this particular project which you know actually the field research and the actual research started in just in june um what we're looking at here is this human decomposition island so the square meter or so that where where a decomp a de- decomposing body actually affects its immediate surrounding, mm. um, and it yeah. really is changing a very small space very quickly, especially in the summertime when it's when it's warm. Right. Yeah. Right. 
You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in uh, one of those two coordinates, as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is Neil Stewart. He's a professor of plant sciences at the University of Tennessee. And um, he teaches courses in plant uh, genomics and uh, biotechnology and research ethics, as well as uh, mentoring approximately 100 trainees over his career, and most of whom are still in science. And he's given scientific and uh, lay presentations around the U.S. and in uh, about 16 countries. So it's a pleasure to have uh, Neil Stewart with us. We're talking about an article he wrote uh, in the conversation, and it's about what plants might be able to tell us about locating dead human bodies. Uh, it's fascinating so far. Uh, now, Dr. Stewart, the, the other thing I guess that uh, that you, you you mentioned is the body farm and uh, working with the body farm. Um, and of course, that's a fascinating idea. You say that there at the body farm, they have been uh, studying uh, Godivers and, and, the, and I guess decomposing uh, bodies in the soil. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why they were doing this? What were they hoping to find by by well, studying um, bodies? Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good question. So you have to go back to the 1980s, maybe even a little bit before that. Um, a, a professor named um, at the University of Tennessee, a professor named Bill Bass, um, had this idea of being able to study human decomposition um, in a, a, a kind of a real sorry for the pun, a real life situation. So he requested a few couple hectares of space and uh, the university donated some, some property. Um, And they've been, they started this um, uh, forensic anthropology center uh, to support the, the, the body farm. And that's been one of their specialties now for, for, for years, the University of Tennessee is uh, known to have produced, uh, to have created the first body farm, and now, you know, it's been emulated se- several times around the world. Um, but but the idea is actually to study the science um, in 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 the field of of human decomposition. Right, and and that's their that's their side of it. And your side of it is to look at how that decomposition interacts with plants. Right. And, and so my, my part and, and the, um, my colleagues' um, parts are basically, yeah, the plant responses. So these are the, the responses of the native vegetation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're looking for spectral changes in, 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 in the leaves, for example, or any sort of... Um, change change uh, in in how the plant looks or how it behaves but you know these trees are many of the same ones that you would have in toronto you know maple mm-hmm. maple trees uh birch birch beech trees oak trees mm-hmm. um, al- along with some of the native uh, along with some non-native uh, horticultural escapes that are that, that are uh, growing in on the site and so um well people really haven't you know researchers really haven't studied uh, these plants like this before so mm. it's all been kind of a learning experience for 
you know, for me and, 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 and my colleagues thinking about how plants can adapt and change to their environment, respond to their environment. But, uh, you know, we, we usually think about uh, drought stress or mm. heat, cold, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And we're usually thinking about crops too, plants that just right, live right. one year uh, and then that's it. So this is, this is all new. It's all new for everybody, I think. Yeah, so um, I, I guess the, the other thing that, that comes to mind is that um, you have to have uh, bodies donated. Yes. So since they've been doing this for such a long time, uh, the University of Tennessee uh, 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 Forensic Anthropology Center um, seems to have a pretty good pipeline of, of, of people who wish to donate their, their bodies for this particular cause. Um, I guess it's not much different than, uh, than people that request from their families to have their body uh, donated to science so that, that science can, can uh, perform uh, you know, uh, experiments and, and do things on it to, to help learn. And, and for, uh, I, I think, the benefit of students as well. Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. It's a it's a real training ground um, for for um, for students, and and then also the facilities used to to train law enforcement, um, you know, for, for forensics uh, to have more information about when when they come to a, a crime scene, what 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 are they looking at? How how can they identify? Mm. The you know the stages of decomposition and and get a better idea about time of death and all that. Mm-hmm. What have you noticed uh, in in what you've done so far uh, in regard to this? Because I I'm I'm wondering if this has been going on for a couple of decades. You say, um, was there any sort of just superficial uh, uh, noticing of any changes or? You know, by anybody working there, not even in, in you know that is working on the 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 from the body farm side of things, even to say, "Wow, look at it! Look at these these plants are really growing over here." Or something, and just like not really understanding what's happening. But uh, you know, what have you seen so far? Well, so we are just starting. So what mm-hmm. we've done is we have done some of the baseline uh, soil soil characteristics. Mm-hmm. We've mapped out all of the plants on our experimental plots um, and we placed uh, the first two uh, two sets of donors with, mm. with within the plots mm. um, so the first thing that we noticed is that um, most of the changes are rather subtle mm. um, but we did note that there was some some color change that seemed to be occurring a few weeks after, after the donors were, were placed. Mm. And so in the second round, we're doing a lot of, a, a lot. So the, the first round, we knew we didn't know anything. Mm. And, and you, you say, yeah, the, these decades where people have been studying, where the anthropologists have been studying, mm-hmm. um, have been studying uh, human decomposition from, from talking with them, they say, Oh yeah, the plants, the plants respond, but they couldn't tell me how the plants responded 
or how right. quickly or how quickly they responded. Right. Right. Um, so, so the first round, we, we, we made some anecdotal observations. The second round, we are set, we've set up a lot of cameras to, to catch them in real time. Mm. Um, and, uh, one of the things that we're, we may have to deal with, and I hope we don't have to deal with it too much is, uh, autumn (laughs) because autumn creates very big changes in, (laughs) in, 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 in leaf and leaf characteristics. Yes. Right. Well, uh, that will be interesting. I guess that's, you're just going to have to, uh, see what the fall brings for, for that, uh, um, you know, there's so many questions that come to mind as you start to, to think about this and go deeper into it. Like, for instance, one of the things I thought about, well, you're burying, uh, uh, you're burying a body. Uh, how deep are you burying this body? Well, so, so far, e- everything we're doing is um, um, surface. Oh, okay. So we're, in, and, and we're doing that for several reasons. So, you know, originally when we, when we wrote the proposal, you know, we debated with each other: Do we want to do a surface and burial, or just surface? Surface mm. gives us uh, the surface placement. We're, we're able to study the decomposition much more closely, yep. and actually, and actually separate the body from the soil. Not, sure. not. I mean, it's not the body's not, uh, consu- you know, all all in the soil, right? And um, and and then what they've learned is that basically what what the soil does is it kind of slows down decomposition Mm -hmm. but you know the decomposition phases are are about the same it's just a lot easier to do all the stuff we needed to do without disturbing the soil and we didn't want to disturb the roots Mm -hmm. right Uh, and this is just the you know so this is just the first you know the first uh sort of sets of experiments that I think have ever been done. So I'm sure there's going to be follow up experiments after we end our research, or at least in this particular project yeah. um, at the end of next year. Right. Um, we're almost out of time. I'm just, uh, I'm wondering uh, one thing. Uh, do you know roughly the, the time frame of, of a body to decompose? Depends on the season. Okay. It, oh, right. Sure. Depends on temperature mainly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but in 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 August, uh, July and August in Tennessee, um, most of it was m- most of the most of the body decomposed within a couple weeks. Wow! It really went fast. Mm. It, it's it's all very fascinating. Uh, just before we go, Neil, if 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 let your 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 imagination run wild here in terms of the research you're doing and what you're 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 working on. Uh, what what do you hope? What do you look down the road to see that that this possibly might do and and help with in the future? Yeah. So what we're really looking at is is trying to find plant signatures, leaf signatures that could be observable from aircraft. So if someone has gone missing over uh, square kilometers, hundreds of kilometers, thousands of kilometers, that we'll be able to pinpoint where that where that body is and, and then send in a team to, to, to go, uh, bring it out. Um, that's, that's the end goal. Wow. And, and also learn, of, of course, as a scientist, learn, learn more about the facts of what, what, what occurs. 
and how right. the plants respond. Right. And, you know, fascinating talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Take care and all the best. Thanks. That's uh, Neil Stewart. He's a professor of plant sciences at the University of Tennessee. We've been talking to him about his article that he wrote in the conversation about uh, how plants might be able to help us tell the location of dead bodies. That's your show for today. We thank you for listening here each and every day to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you next time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.